Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to episode 84 of the Fabulously Keto podcast. And today my guest has been recommended by a previous guest, Joanne McManamy. And Michelle Hearn is this recommended guest. She's a dietitian and I thoroughly enjoyed this interview with Michelle. So thank you, Joanne, for suggesting Michelle to us. Michelle asks in the subtitle of her book, what would you do if your health was restored by doing the opposite of everything you were taught? And I think this is such a powerful statement that you can probably get the gist of what the interview is about, but I'm sure there's going to be a few surprises in there for you too. But let me read Michelle's bio to you. Michelle Hearn, RDLD, ultra runner, author of The Dietitian's Dilemma, is a registered and li- licensed dietitian with 11 years of experience as a clinical acute care dietitian, lead dietitian in psychiatric care and outpatient dietitian. While practicing inpatient and outpatient care in the hospital setting, Michelle discovered a disheartening connection between the high carbohydrate, low fat, sugar in moderation, nutrition guidelines she was required to teach and the rapidly declining health of her patients. Michelle is an endurance athlete and she has competed in 12 marathons. In 2019, Michelle decided to follow a low-carb, high-fat, high-animal protein diet to see if it would alleviate severe muscle pain she was experiencing. Not only was her muscle pain gone in a matter of weeks, her decades of anxiety began to fade. Michelle is the author of the book, The Dietitian's Dilemma, detailing how the current nutrition guidelines came into existence and advocating a low-carbohydrate, animal-based way of eating as an option for individuals struggling, struggling with diabetes, mental disorders, eating disorders, sarcopenia and heart disease. Michelle won her first ultramarathon covering 44.63 miles in a six-hour time frame. Michelle also won the Tunnel Hill 50-mile race, clocking seven hours, three minutes and one second in 2021. Just before we go to the interview, I thought I would mention that I have purchased this um, Michelle's book, The Dietitian's Dilemma, on Audible. And I've started listening to it. I'm about a quarter of the way through. So 
the introduction, the foreword, her story and chapter one, which is about diabetes. Um, and I am really enjoying listening to this book. Now, a, a lot of the information I know already, um, but I, I never tire of listening to the information. And, you know, I listen to lots of podcasts. I read lots of books. I listen to books and I could listen to this stuff over and over again. But I think if you are somebody that's new to low carbon keto, this would be a great intro book. Um, I mean, as I said, I haven't read it all yet. I've only or listened to it all yet. I've only about a quarter of the way through, but it sounds like it's a very easy to listen to, easy to read book. Um, if you're, if you're not new to keto, then do you like hearing lots of the same information? I don't tire of it. So it, yeah, I would, I would definitely recommend this book to anybody that was interested. And we have a link in the show notes if you want to just click through and, and order the book. Over to the interview now. Welcome, Michelle, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today. Ah, thank you so much. I'm excited. Yeah, me too, because we've got lots of topics we're going to cover here. So who knows where we're going to go today, which we'll see. <laughs> so we always start, we have a very con concrete question at the beginning is, where in the world are you? I am in the United States. I live right outside of Portland, Oregon, on the West Coast in Vancouver, Washington. Excellent. So um, tell us a little bit about your story. What got you to be lower carb and yeah, and how you got there? Who was, how did you find out about it? And who was the one to introduce it to you? Gosh, I guess I'll try to give you the Reader's Digest version because kind of my like health journey really starts when I was much younger. You know, when I was 12 years old, I was diagnosed with anorexia nervosa. Um, I was five feet tall, 57 and a half pounds. Oh gosh, I don't know. I'd have to, I should have done that in kilograms for you guys. Um, very underweight, incredibly <laughs> underweight. Yeah. And I was in, uh, inpatient treatment for two months. So, you know, I actually, at that time, you know, I was given a very, uh, kind of a grim outcome. You know, the doctor told my parents had about a 10% chance to survive, but, you know, I was fed the standard American diet, which, you know, very high carbohydrate. I was put on a 24 hour tube feeding system. And at the age of 12 was, I was on seven different medications because I had so much GI issues, uh, depression, anxiety, you know, constipation, pain, but I did gain weight. And I was just told as a young person, like, Hey, you're going to have to deal with anxiety, eating disorder thoughts, probably the rest of your life. And so, you know, I went through my adolescence and into adulthood, I decided I wanted to be a dietitian. I wanted to figure out what's going on in my body, but I, I, they were right. You know, I struggled around food. I was thinking about it constantly. Um, you know, I ate constantly because I was hungry constantly. Um, but I did become an athlete. I became a, a distance runner and I ended up running in high school and for a couple of years in college. And then can I interrupt you and ask sure. you the anorexia? Was that what was that about? It was, was it just something that happened or was it something that you chose to do because you didn't want to be fat? Oh, great question. Yeah. You know, I was so young. I remember like not even really understanding exactly what was going on. You know, it certainly wasn't something that I like set out and thought like, let's do this. You know, I want to, I don't think anybody is, is like, wow, I want to starve myself today. Um, you know, I grew up, there was a lot of trauma in my house, uh, growing up. I'm the youngest of four. I have three older sisters and my mom is, um, bipolar. And unfortunately growing up, she was undiagnosed 
really struggled with depression and anxiety, also um, struggled with eating disorder tendencies, wasn't ever diagnosed, but probably definitely leaning towards anorexia, um, underweight. So even from the time I was very young, I remember being, you know, five, six years old and my mom was on a diet. My mom was, you know, berating herself. I'm too fat. I'm too fat. I mean, she's five foot four, you know, hundred, hundred pounds, very underweight. So mm. I feel like it you know, certainly wasn't intentional, but from the time I was very young, there was a message that being fat was not okay, was unlovable. Um, and so you know, and, and unfortunately, you know, she went through periods where she was manic or depressed and very absent. And my dad is, my dad's great. I love, I love both my parents, um, very good relationship today, but he worked a lot because my mom wasn't able to most of the time. And so, you know, you kind of had this, this absent, <laughs> absent parents. And then, um, you know, you're getting these messages that, you know, losing weight is the way to go is you have, you can't be fat. And, you know, I talk about this a lot in my book, you know, um, the world was very different than, you know, we didn't have phones, we didn't have uh, internet. Um, so I think it was really easy for me to kind of slip through the cracks. Like nobody really noticed I was losing weight um, until it was pretty dangerously low. So can I just clarify, did you say 57 pounds? 57 and a half, yes. 57 and a half, which is um, for our listeners is 25 20, just under 26 kilos. Yes. And um, in the UK, for those of us, four stone. Yes. That, I don't think my leg weighs. I think my <laughs> leg weighs more than that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And, you know, that's um, unfortunately, too, for individuals with anorexia, you know, a lot of times they don't display the same um, neuroglycopenic symptoms as people who don't aren't going through starvation. And what I mean by that is if, you know, if you're relatively metabolically healthy and um, you're dealing with hypoglycemia, your blood sugar gets low, you'll start to get kind of dizzy, kind of shaky. Often that doesn't happen. I I was literally walking to class and I passed out. Like, I don't remember I was, you know, I was 12 years old walking to class. And I remember thinking like, Oh, my stomach doesn't feel good. And I woke up in a hospital Mm. where I was told my blood glucose was 24 and I didn't know what that meant at the time, but now as an adult and I'm, you know, a health practitioner, I'm like, oh my gosh, you could die <laughs> if yeah, it's that yeah. low. And that's obviously when they discovered like, hey, your heart is, is shutting down, your kidneys are failing. Like, this is not good. You know, yeah. this is really bad. And so it wasn't long after that, that I was um, placed in inpatient treatment. Mm. I'll let you get back to your story. Yeah. So, you know, I, I feel very grateful, you know, I certainly in my book and in my advocacy, I'm very hard on the medical community, but you know, that, that, that experience obviously saved my life, you know, and part of my advocacy certainly is that I think we can feed people better that are recovering from eating disorders, but, you know, I decided to become a dietitian and to become a dietitian in the States, you know, you do your four-year degree and then you go through an internship. And when I went through my internship, I just noticed there were things that didn't make sense. And I would just ask questions. For example, we went into the room of this um, gentleman who was very obese and type two diabetic. And the dietitian was explaining to me how we were going to feed him. He was going to get 75 grams of carbs per meal and 15 per snack. And I just asked, I said, that seems like a lot. Like he can't, his body not really tolerate carbs. Like maybe, maybe he shouldn't have so many. And she, oh no, Michelle, everybody needs carbs. Whole grains are important. We're going to give him fruit and all this good stuff. And I just remember thinking that was odd, but you're a student, right? You're new. And then we went to the ICU 
And I remember flipping over the tube feeding and I was like, oh my gosh, this is the same ingredients that I had. I was fed as a 12 year old. And that at the time, this was 13 years later. Now, you know, <laughs> I'm 38. So, and it's the same stuff. The number one ingredients of tube feeding formulas are maltodextrin, corn syrup, canola oil, and soy protein. Oh. And those are 90% of the tube feeding formulas to this day still, still have that. So I would just ask questions. I'd say, wow, is this really what, is this really going to help this person heal? Oh, Michelle, it's all about calories. Don't worry about it. You know? So I was kind of pegged as this like difficult dietetic student from the get-go. And, um, you know, but you're, like I said, you're a student, you're learning. And so when I started practicing, it wasn't long that I just realized like, man, my patients are not getting better and you kind of become numb to it. You're, and I know it's, I imagine it's like this worldwide, but we're given so many patients to see you're given minimal time to see people and you have to spend all this time charting. And so you're just like kind of hustling through like, okay, are you eating enough? Okay. You know, you're not really. I didn't feel like I was really helping people. It was like a revolving door. People, you know, you had diabetes, they came back, they had more problems, more infections, go into kidney failure. And I was told by a lot of doctors and other dietitians, well, it's not the guidelines that are wrong. The patients just aren't doing what we tell them to do. They're not eating. And it just, and you of know, course. obviously there's exceptions, but yeah. for the most part, I found that my patients were really trying to do what, the, what I was telling them, which at that time was this carb heavy nonsense. So yeah. But the norm is you're so busy, I guess, doing what you're doing your job and getting through that you don't really question it anymore. You you learn to stuff down that feeling of questioning and saying, is this right? If you keep getting shut down every time you ask a question when you when you were young and curious and wanting to understand why they were giving you giving these people lots of carbs when really they're carb intolerant. You were just a natural curiosity, but you get shut down so much that you stop questioning, I guess. Well, there's a lot of myths too around low carbohydrate diets. I was taught very early that low carbohydrate diets are very dangerous. You mm. will have no energy. They're dangerous for your heart. They're dangerous for your kidneys. And we all know, I mean, we know now we have so many clinical studies that say that's absolutely not true. And we're almost taught to override our common sense. You know, if you just take a step back and say like throughout evolution, people ate meat and fat, that is the human art physiology, human physiology is designed to absorb the nutrition from meat and fat very well. And not just the protein and fat, but all the, the vitamins, the B vitamins, the iron, the folate, the carnitine, all these things we absorb very well. And the further we've moved away from that into these, you know, cereals and breads and seed oils the more diseases that we have and the more problems that we have, yeah. but you're right. I actually, I, I practiced in a few different States. And when I, when we lived in uh, Colorado, I brought, I brought concerns to my clinical director. I just said, look, I feel like I have too many patients. I don't have time to have conversations. I don't feel like my people are getting better. And she, she literally said, are you seeing patients? I said, well, yeah. She said, well, are you charting? Yeah. Okay. That's it. Like it, it wasn't about getting people better. It was about checking the boxes. Are we getting insurance reimbursement? Are we, you know, Michelle, you're getting a paycheck. What are you complaining about? Mm -hmm. um, and it just like hurt my heart, you know? And I think it, it puts a lot of medical professionals in a very precarious position because you've spent a lot of time and a lot of money because you care and you want to help people. You went to school, but now you're in a position where your, your job is literally preventing you from helping people. Yeah. And I, 
doctors have that as well, not not just the dietitian. I think it's the whole sick Absolutely. care industry. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, oh, so did- <laughs> when did I become low carb? So I, I followed a relatively high carbohydrate for most of my life. And you know, like I said, I had periods of pretty severe anxiety. Um, you know, I've talked on other podcasts, suffered with self self-injury, suicidal ideation at one point. And, um, yeah. And, but I, like you and I talked offline, I, I was a distance runner and I wanted to qualify for the Olympic trials. Um, and to do that in the States or I'm sorry, in the U S you have to run under two hours and 45 minutes for a marathon. And my fastest time was 254. So in 2019, I was training really hard. I really wanted to give it one more go. And all of a sudden my performance, my running performance kind of started to suffer. And I'm like, Oh, what's going on? You know, I just started working at a a hospital as an acute care dietitian in Portland, Oregon, you know, I'm reaching out to friends and everybody kept telling me like, Oh, you just need more calories and more carbs. And so I went from eating like 350 grams of carbohydrates a day to 500. Um, And as you can imagine, (laughs) that did not go particularly well. I was getting cold sweats on runs. I, I had been able to run, you know, 15, 20 miles at a time, um, and kilometers shoot, like, (laughs) you know, 30 kilometers at a time. And I couldn't do a 5k without getting a cold sweat. My body hurt. I started to have panic attacks. Um, I went to a doctor, got my blood checked. Everything was fine. And, um, kind of the, the final moment was I had a really tough day at the hospital. I had a patient pass away, uh, came home, fell asleep very early. And I woke up at like two in the morning and it just felt like my body was on fire. My legs hurt and I didn't know what to do. You know, there's only so much ibuprofen you can take. And so at two in the morning, I lo- I drove to our local, you know, gas station and got 30 pounds of ice. I came home, put it in the bathtub and made an ice bath. And so I'm sitting there crying (laughs) and my wife came in and was like, you know, maybe we should do something differently. And I was like, yes, we should. This is ridiculous. I'm done. I don't want to run anymore. I was mentally broken, physically, certainly broken. And so, yeah, at that point, I just said, you know, if I'm not going to run, why don't I not eat so many carbohydrates? Like I kind of intuitively knew they didn't make me feel great, but I had just been so indoctrinated that this is necessary. You have to have these. And so I just decided, I thought like, I'll just do this for 30 days. Let's do like a ketogenic, really low carb diet. And that, you know, kind of led me down the rabbit hole where I found the carnivore diet. And I thought, oh, that could be really useful for 30 days. Um, I'll, I, I figured the protein could help my muscles. And of course, uh, you know, coming from having a pretty serious eating disorder as a young person, my, my wife was like, no, I do not want you to do this. This is restrictive. This will only set you back. This is going to cause more problems. Um, so we thought about it, <laughs> uh, and finally, I guess you like, won. Yeah. Well, she's like, you know what? You're an adult, do whatever you want. You're going to quit. And, uh, the first week was, you know, a little, <laughs> a little rough, you know, you get those, the kind of that big transition, um, had some headaches, but so did you go cold Turkey from, I did, oh, I wow. did. <laughs> and I didn't do electrolytes. I didn't really know what I was doing. I would tell anybody and everybody, make sure you have the electrolytes. I, I think that could have helped a lot. Um, but I, after the first week, I noticed my muscles weren't hurting and I felt better. Like I felt my energy was better, but I was just like, well, I'm not running. So that must be why. But then by the third week, I'm, you know, this still amazes me three weeks into doing this after eating, you know, my whole life and struggling with anxiety, my whole life, basically I came home from work and my wife was sitting on the couch and she said, Hey, can you sit with me for a second? 
I said, yeah, what's going on? And she's, you know, took my hand and said, I don't know if I like this way of eating or not. This is the best your anxiety has been in the 11 years I've known you. And we both were just like, whoa, like she was right. Like I I was calm. (laughs) I could go for hours without eating. I wasn't thinking about food. I wasn't obsessing about it. I was enjoying, like the world was brighter. And uh, yeah, it was, that changed my life. And that was when I took, you know, some time to really dive into the science. Cause I was like, well, why, why do I feel so much better? You know, and thanks to the work of so many amazing professionals, I've just been so blessed to be able to, you know, uh, study the work of Georgia Ede and, you know, met and interviewed Chris Palmer and um, God, there's so many Dr. Eric Westman and, you know, obviously Dr. Ken Berry and really dive into the science. Mm-hmm. I was shocked. And honestly, I was angry when I, when I found out, I was like, we have clinical trials that we can improve blood glucose and, and insulin sensitivity in 10 weeks. <laughs> I had patients who were diabetic for 20 years. Yeah. And getting worse, not better. And getting worse. And so then you go back. I was so excited. I brought, I, I, I printed out all these clinical trials. I brought them to my hospital and was like, look what we can do. And of course, you know, <laughs> I, I'm still, I'm too old to be this naive, but I was told like, oh no, you cannot teach this at all. Um, and I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I can't talk about it. I can't teach it. Nope. You have to teach the standard guidelines. And so that's when I started writing my book. Cause I was like, okay, well, I'm going to put this together. I, cause I had the dietitian's dilemma. What do you do? My health was restored. I had information. Yeah. Um, and once you yeah, know it, you, you can't unknow it. Can you, you can't unknow it. And then you can't do, I just keep teaching something that could potentially hurt people, but I stay employed and make a great paycheck. Or do I, you know, and this is not me like <laughs> judging anybody, like it's a, it's a horrible situation to be in, but ultimately, you know, I had to make an exit plan. I had to be like, I can't keep doing this. I've got to, you know, <laughs> obviously stay until I can financially figure out what to do. Um, but yeah, I, I no longer, like you said, you can't unsee it. So have you figured out your exit plan? Have you put it into action? Oh, yeah. where, where are you <laughs> well, on your exit helped. plan? <laughs> Yeah, it was, uh, interestingly, um, you know, before COVID I was supposed to have my own floor. I was supposed to get my own, you know, and my own, we had business cards set up my, you know, I was going to get two floors in April of 2020. Um, and then during, I was the newest dietitian in the hospital. And then after COVID all elective surgeries were canceled. So I lost all my dietitian hours. I said, Oh, don't worry, Michelle, we want to keep you on staff. We think this will pass. We're going to put you in the employee call center. Okay. Well, what does that mean? Oh, patients are going to call eight hours a day and you're not, you can't talk to them about food. You just take their food orders. So for eight hours, diabetic patients are calling in. I want pancakes for breakfast, chocolate cake for lunch, heart disease. Patients are calling in. They can order. I had a guy order 144 grams of carbs for breakfast, but we can't give them salt or fat, you know, mm-hmm. and my heart hurt. Yeah. And I was in, I got in trouble a few times just because I was honest. (laughs) Yeah. It's really hard. I don't know how you did it. Oh, and at the same time, you know, you know, I had decided I was never going to run again, but, um, about, yeah. And I didn't for like a month and I was home more, you know, just (laughs) because you're not running. And, uh, my wife is really was more introverted. She appreciates, um, solace and solitude kind of just casually said one day, like, you're annoying me. We go for a run. And we kind of joke about it because I was like, I can't run. I'm not eating any carbs, but I was like, whatever. It's 
drop the ego. Why don't I go jog? And I went out and I came back an hour later. I felt really good. And we were both like, oh my gosh, like, could I run again? Cause it had been such a big part of my life. And so my poor wife was like, oh, this will be great. You can be a recreational runner. We have beautiful trails here. And I was like, what if I run an ultra marathon? Forget this 50 <laughs> mile or 26 miles marathon. What if I, and so to be honest, she wasn't super excited about that idea, but, um, I just started dreaming again. And that's probably one of my greatest, I mean, two of the greatest things that have happened to me since becoming a low carb, you know, human are one, my anxiety. Like I cannot tell you, I had the life, it was life altering to feel calm, to feel focused, to be able to think and speak clearly, um, to sleep well, and then being able to run again and dream of being competitive. Um, yeah, I connected with Zach Bitter. He was a low carb athlete at that time. He was the world record holder in the hundred mile. And he was like, yeah, let's see Let's see if we can do this. And so, you know, I'm training for, I started training for an ultra. I had an ultra I was going to do in Canada in May. I was, you know, still at the hospital at this time. And then, like I said, COVID it. <laughs> and so now I'm in a call center getting, you know, calls and I just, people ordering all the shitty food and I'm not allowed to talk about it. And then I found out my race got canceled. And so it was hard. It was pretty devastating, but I scheduled another, okay, here's another race in October. Surely things will be better by October. Oh, of course, and yeah. then, um, yeah, it was, I only lasted, I think another few weeks in the call center one, because I kept telling patients like, this is really bad for you. you shouldn't do this. <laughs> They're like, you can't do that. Um, one guy asked me what I recommended doing and I told him to fast and that was recorded and I got in trouble for that. Um, <laughs> And so finally, you know, we were able like financially to be like, can, could I take a, could I leave? Could I just work on the book? And there was also a place in Portland, Oregon, um, a local place that like, kind of like a butcher shop broke down meat and made homemade sausage. And they were looking for an entry-level employee. So <laughs> I went from making, you know, $35 an hour to 12 <laughs> <laughs> doing a, you know, typing and seeing patients to, uh, hustling and making meat. So my life changed, you know, but I can't tell you, I was really happy. I think that was good for my soul. You know, I spent every, I'd get up, I'd run and go make sausage. And then I'd come home and I'd write. And I was very lucky during that time to have several mentors really help me with my book. You know, the book has, you know, 25 testimonies, 180 clinical trials, um, and I just, you know, kept praying like, all right, you know, it was funny. It was like, what if nobody reads this? What if nobody hears about it? So I called my sister and I was like, Hey, I'm going to write a book. Will you, we buy one. <laughs> it's like, get one copy. <laughs> and she's like, I'll buy two. I'm like, well, there you go. I got a couple of books. Uh, yeah. And then as time went on, it was, it was clear that I was getting stronger with my running, which was really exciting. But then my race got canceled again. Yeah. Of course. So, um, finally in November 7th, 2020 in Las Vegas, Nevada, which in the States is a place with like gambling and casinos right outside of that. They were having a uh, six hour race and it was a three mile loop. And, um, I was, and it didn't get canceled. So I was, it actually happened and I was, there was 22 mile an hour winds. <laughs> so it was intense, but, um, yeah, I was just so grateful to toe the line. And I actually won the race. You know, I covered a little over 44 miles in uh, six hours and reflecting that, you know, 
10 months before that, or I guess at that point now, 11 months before that, I couldn't even run two miles. Yeah. I mean, I cried. I found a place in the shade, you know, change. And I just cried. Um, and I, I don't think I'll ever be able to fully express how grateful I was at that moment and how my body and brain had healed to the point where I could, you know, not only just be <laughs> a better, healthy human, but to be able to compete again was really special. Yeah. So when you did that race, 44 miles, did you, did you eat anything during that time or was it completely fasted? Oh no. So I am, I, I work with a company called S fuel. So it kind of stands for spike free fuels. So they actually approached me, um, gosh, early in 2020, because they are a low carb company. They, they do low carb, you know, endurance products. And I was kind of like, you know, I want to try this first before I, I speak for you guys. And I was really impressed because, you know, so much of sports nutrition is just sugar, 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 you know, all these goos and gels and stuff. And so, you know, what their products are, it's like, you know, electrolytes, coconut oil, a little bit of collagen. And yeah, I was, I was amazed, you know, before, before my marathons as a high carb human, I would get up and I'd have three or 400 calories, mostly carbs before my six hour run, I had coffee with heavy cream and one scoop of the S fuels, which is like 60 calories, one gram of carbs. And then because I had trained, I was so, my body was able to oxidize fat so well, I'm able to take in significantly less carbohydrates. You know, the recommendations for most runners are, uh, I want to say like 40, um, I mean, up to a hundred grams of carbs an hour. I mean, I was able to do 15 and it was just like liquid, you know, and we, if you're, if you're listening to this and you've run an endurance event and it hit the wall, it's awful. It's a scary, terrible feeling. And I never hit the wall. I mean, I remember looking at my watch being like, all right, I ran 28 miles. Like I felt steady. And of course you have muscle pain. I mean, you're running for hours. You're going to be fatigued, but I never felt like I'm going to run out of energy, which was really, really cool. And I think that's the whole, one of the biggest benefits, especially for endurance athletes is just when you can burn fat, you feel great. You know, you feel like I said, it's not like you're not going to have muscle fatigue, but you're not going to get that like blood sugar crash and blood sugar spike. You know, it's like, oh, I feel terrible. I take a goo. I feel terrible. I take a goo, you know? Um, so it was really incredible. And the probably as well as the performance aspects from my distance running, the recovery um, is, is a zillion times better. Like in no universe after running a marathon, could I, <laughs> could I go and jog, you know, a few days later? I mean, I, I would be out for weeks. Yeah. Where, yeah, I mean, of course, you're going to feel sore after an ultra, but I would, I was surprised how much more quickly I bounced back. Yeah. I, I interviewed someone and she said that um, she ended up in the hospital after running. Uh, she was doing a triathlon, I think, and she would end up in the hospital and that seemed to be the norm. Mm-hmm. Yet when she went low carb, she didn't. So, yeah. I think I question how good it is for your body to be consuming so much glucose and so much sugar. You know, you're certainly taxing that, that system. Um, you know, you get a lot of swelling, a lot of inflammation and, you know, unfortunately most people who, who do that are doing that as training as athletes, you know, they're doing that daily. They're having carbohydrates before, during, after, throughout the day. Um, it's yeah. I, now that I look back, I'm just like, man, I, I wonder if so many of the problems I had injuries and illnesses and other things could have been prevented even by, you know, I'm not saying eliminating carbohydrates. Like I said, I certainly utilize some, but using them strategically and intelligently versus like the base of your diet. Yeah. Did it, 
did it affect your times? Um, so I've never, I haven't run, uh, I can't compare like a marathon, high carb marathon to low carb. Like, I, if I ran a marathon, I certainly could compare that. But since I've only done ultras low carb, you know, yeah. uh, it'd be hard to say, <laughs> you know, I don't run, I run faster in marathons. My mile pace is, was certainly faster as a high carb athlete. Um, but I was also doing different training. I think it'd be really curious to see, um, although I'd, I wouldn't want to do an ultra high carb. Um, yeah, but you know, we, we do know that you can run faster, um, even using a lower carb approach, you can, you can oxidize fat at higher heart rates, but it does take time and it does take, you know, consistency and training. Mm-hmm. Are you tempted to apply for the Olympics again? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't think I'm a, I don't think I'd ever be fast enough. You know, I just wanted to qualify for the trials, you know, just to toe the line. Like I had no ambitions of being in the top three, but I, I do. I would like to see how fast I can run a 50 miler and a hundred miler. You know, I've, I've met, actually met Camille Heron, who is the hundred mile world record holder for women. Mm-hmm. I met her at the tunnel Hill, um, 50 miler, uh, 50 and a hundred miler. And so, you know, it kind of gets a little spinning in your head. It's like, yeah, can I be close like that? I don't know. Um, I mean, as long I, as long as I'm enjoying it, as long as it's bringing me joy and I'm having a good time and, um, I'm going to, I'm going to keep going, you know, I'm, I'm naturally driven. I'm, I'm naturally motivated and I, you know, it, it's kind of within me to see like, can, well, how far can I go? You know? Um, cause I'm just, I'll tell you, I'll never put limits on the human body. And this would be my, another message to your listeners is I mean, the human body has a tremendous capacity to heal, like greater than anyone is led you to believe the human body and brain are so capable of healing, but we do have to remove a lot of inflammatory foods, I believe, and we have to give it the correct nutrition. Yeah. And once we do that, it, I mean, it'll blow your mind how, how much you can heal. Yeah. So you, you have some experience. I mean, you have got your personal experience with anorexia, but you have some other experience with eating disorders. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. Just about working with people with eating disorders. Yeah. Just, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I just spoke at low carb, um, low carb USA on, um, low carb diets and anorexia also, you know, low carb diets and binge eating disorder, because the traditional kind of the dogma has been, you can't prescribe a low carbohydrate, a ketogenic diet, even a carnivore diet to somebody who's struggling with, uh, anorexia, bulimia, or binge eating disorder, because these diets are restrictive quote unquote. And these people are already struggling with restricting food. Thus doing that will exacerbate the disease. Well, I argued that there's a few things we want to do when it comes to eating disorder um, treatment, that (laughs) the standard American diet or how we're feeding people right now is failing because the, the statistics are really scary. The statistics are awful. Like anorexia specifically has, is the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric disorder. So more people are going to die from anorexia than major depression, than any anxiety disorders, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder. Um, for females aged 15 to 24 have a 12 times more likely rate to die of anorexia than anything else, accident, yeah. illness. Um, the relapse rate is 50%. That's terrible. That's in, just that should be like, God, we got to look at what we're doing here. Yeah. Um, and also, I mean, what's really sad or to me is really sad is that 20% of people who die of anorexia are not going to die of heart disease or, or, you know, heart failure or just malnourishment. They're going to die, um, 
from suicide. So and we actually know now um, the latest statistics are 26% of people with uh, all eating disorders, anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder will attempt suicide. I it's guess a horrible, in, scary place to be. Yeah, I was going to say, sucks. I guess it's a really, they're in such desperation that it's, it's got... dark. It's, I mean, I will tell you when, and this is one thing, you know, I feel like probably one of the hardest things that I, I, I admitted in my book and I just put out there was when the doctor told my parents I had a 10% chance to live. I wasn't sad or scared. I was relieved as a 12 year old. Mm. I thought, I remember thinking, thank God it is almost over. I do not want to live like this. Every day that I woke up in treatment, I was angry. I was like, okay, tomorrow will be the day that I'll die. Tomorrow I won't wake up. I don't want to, I don't want to live. I don't want to live this constant anxious. And then you're in so much pain. So, so going back to that, that is my people with eating disorder, especially anorexia are often told like, oh, it's on your head. You know, your stomach doesn't hurt. Well, if you starve your body, or, you know, or you're binging and you're purging, you're damaging your system, your GI system, your, the, your gastrointestinal epithelium, all the cells that line your GI system are damaged. Yeah. And so when you start eating again, you're going to have initially some issues. So my, my advocacy and my hypothesis is we need to feed people with damaged GI systems, food that supports the healing. I mean, it seems kind of common sense. So that's one, that's one, the one thing I think we need to do. The second thing we need to do is balance blood sugar. We have to balance blood sugar. We know people with anorexia actually have higher levels of insulin, you know, hence being having those, uh, glyconeuropenic symptoms. If, um, you know, they go low blood sugar, um, and just doing that, just stabilizing your blood sugar and energy has a profound effect on anxiety. We know can reduce anxiety. And then we also have to heal your brain. The brain needs two, well, the brain needs several things, but two main things to function. We need fat. We need a lot of fat, saturated fat. And it also needs um, amino acids. It needs high quality protein based, animal based amino acids. Yeah. And and so, yeah. And so that's, it's like if we, and so if I ran an eating disorder treatment center, which is interesting because right now there's no standard, like there's no, like, this is how you treat eating disorders. Either you go to 10 different centers, get 10 different, you know, um, ways to do things. Or, yeah. but yeah, if you go, like, if you go into any eating disorder treatment center right now, you will like, let's say like if I went, you know, and I was 50 pounds underweight, you'll immediately be put on a tube feeding system. Um, so you're going to get, you know, thousands of calories of that multidextrin corn syrup, canola oil, and you're going to be immediately required to eat three high calorie standard American diet meals. So my question to healthcare and to people is, is that the best way for long-term recovery? Is that, are we really helping heal people when we do that? There's also a message that all foods fit. So somebody that potentially has a food addiction or binge eating disorder, if they aren't able to eat a cookie or eat a piece of cake and not binge, then they're not recovered, yeah. which is the dumbest shit I've ever heard. Like yeah. <laughs> if you, you wouldn't, you, you it, wouldn't give an alcoholic alcohol, would you? No, you never would. You never would. And we actually have very good data that, especially for certain people, um, eating, you know, seed oils and sugars and flowers actually alters the neurotransmitters in your brain, specifically glutamate. Glutamate can go up to a hundred times its normal level when you're, you know, you're feeding your body all this, uh, all these flowers and sugars. 
And what that does is that actually suppresses neuroplasticity. It doesn't allow your brain, neuroplasticity allows your brain to take in information, to change, to mold. It also helps you cope with stress. So here you are in recovery, trying to get better, but you're being fed a diet that prevents your body from, or prevents your brain from taking in any new information and coping with stress. But then you're told you're the problem. Why can't you get your shit together and just, you know, eat and not binge? Yeah. Or the person with anorexia who's literally having massive diarrhea. I, I, you know, I shared on a podcast last night that I, I literally woke up as a 12 year old soaked in tube feeding because my body like couldn't take it all in. So the tube would like overflow. It was disgusting. And I was told like, oh man, you know, you're just going to have to keep going, have to get it together. How different would my life and recovery be if they had said, hey, you know what? You've got to heal your system. We got to get out all the sugars, flowers, fibers, anything inflammatory. And we're just going to, we're going to work you up to three, four, 5,000, excuse me, calories of fat and meat. We're going to let everything heal. And I'm not saying once again, that you have to be zero carb or low carb your whole life. Then you can start building those back in, but you've got to let that system heal. Cause I'm seeing it over and over in the ketogenic and carnivore communities, people with lifelong eating disorders when they give their system a break, when they give their system time to just heal, all of a sudden, you know, your mind is clearer. You're, you're, you can actually start to really recover and, you know, work through your trauma, face your issues, establish new behaviors and patterns. But I'm just not sure you can do that if your system isn't healed. No. And I guess the gut, well, like you said, it's, it's inflamed and what you're putting, putting in is inflaming it even more. So how are you, how can you even assimilate the nutrients that you might be eating? And there's probably not a lot of nutrients in what you're eating if you're exactly. on the standard Western diet. And then, you know, there statistically a lot of people when they get out of treatment, well, um, there's a rapid weight loss and, you know, I was often told like, oh, people with eating disorders just don't want to get better. They're manipulative or whatever. And it's like, they just don't want to feel shitty. Have, has anyone thought about that? Like, <laughs> it's like, if you're in pain. I get out, I'm going to stop putting stuff in my body. That's just causing so much pain. Yeah. So if we can help you and teach you, how can we eat and make your body nourished and strong in a way that doesn't cause pain and causes calm? Cause I swear, like, like if you had told me that, you know, I don't know, three or four years ago, like, Hey, Michelle, I'm going to, you're going to be, you can eat in a way that you'll no longer have racing thoughts around food and anxiety, and you're going to feel calm, but you know, we have to cut off your right arm. I would have been like, meh. All right. <laughs> you know, like that's how it, it's, it's, it's enduring. It's all the time. It, it dominates so much of what you do. I feel like I could never fully participate in my life. Cause I was always just thinking about food. When's my next meal? What am I going to do? Blah, blah, blah. So takes up a lot. I can't tell you power. how much better it is. And in, in the, this nonsense dogma bullshit that it's like, Oh, this is restrictive. We've got to stop that. We've got to stop every health coach. Every person has to stop that because people are dying. People yeah. are suffering lifelong. I, I love the subtitle of your book, which says, what would you do if your health was restored by doing the opposite of everything you were taught? And, and that's, that's what it was, what it boils down to, doesn't it? And we've been so <laughs> brainwashed into believing it. Even I, I say myself that I didn't really, I never went low fat. I never bought anything low fat. It was always high fat, high, whatever it was. I would have that. But in my head, 
the brainwashing of this is not good for you, you're going to have a heart attack and all those things that they they went with it. So that again is energy that you're spending thinking about is what you're eating. So even if you choose not to listen to the dietary advice and do something different, you've still got that brain power going into thinking why I'm doing something, I'm damaging myself by following, by eating the way I'm eating, even though it's tasty, nice food that I really enjoy. <laughs> so how how do we get past that that dogma and that, how do we get the paradigm shift that we need for people to wake up and say, I need to change what I'm doing. I don't need to buy into the propaganda anymore. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing I, you know, I always encourage people to like have some before, you know, have some radical honesty. Like for me, when I was, you know, in that ice bath at three in the morning, I mean, my life was a mess and this isn't like, I'm a crappy person. this isn't like, you know, wallowing in your own self-sorrow, but just saying like, everything is really bad. My anxiety is really bad. So if you're like, you know, if you're listening to this or, you know, somebody like just having some honesty being like, this isn't good. And then I also think it really helps to take a step back and see where is all this message coming from? You know, like, is, is it really about health? Like are all the, are, is this message, this low fat, this, you know, whole grains, high fiber, all that stuff. And, you know, it's really helped me to see, you know, I read a whole chapter on where the nutrition guidelines came from and it's, it's, it's bizarre, but you know, then the Academy of nutrition, which is the governing board of all dietitians is very heavily sponsored by processed foods. Mm-hmm. You know, um, our two latest sponsors are Barilla Pasta and the National Confectionery Association. So we are literally sponsored by candy. Yeah. So what do you think? You know, the, it's not about health. It's about making profit for our, our stakeholders and shareholders. Yeah. When people get healthy, we lose money. Yeah. I mean, we live in a capitalist society, unfortunately. And so I think you really have to take charge of your own health. This is not, you don't want to depend on your healthcare. You don't want to depend on the government. You don't want to depend on anybody else. You have to be willing to go against the grain because we also live in a society. In both sense go- of the words, in both sense yeah. of the words. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we live in a society where you can't go anywhere and not get be faced with processed foods. Like I literally took my dog to the vet and the, our vet has like a free mocha machine. I'm like, what the hell? Like, everywhere you go. So you have to be very aware that the system is kind of set up against you. So you, I mean, you know, take steps to be like, I'm, I'm rising above. I mean, I just love how I feel so much. And I, I feel like I'm able to actually participate in my own life and contribute to the world. And then also realizing, I mean, it was Nina Teichel who first alerted me because people are like, well, if we have all this information and it's so good, why can't we make changes? Why can't, why won't the nutrition guidelines change? Cause it's not like we don't know this, this is public information available for everybody. So in the United States, we have several members of Congress who are actually ketogenic, but every single member of Congress is sponsored by a pharmaceutical company or takes money from a pharmaceutical, every single one. So you are not going to see a paradigm shift from the top. At least I don't think so. No, I hope I somebody so. proves me wrong. I yeah. would love to see it. You know, if, if you're out there in policy, God bless you. Godspeed. That's not my jam. But being willing to look at the evidence and say, you know what, this isn't working. It hasn't been working. And I can rattle off lots of statistics on how much worse, you know, mental health is. I mean, d- depression is the number one cause of disability in the United States. That's insane. Um, so being willing to say like, okay, I want to be different. 
and you know, the greatest thing about a, a ketogenic diet, like you said, or, you know, a higher, higher protein, lower carb diet is it's amazing. It tastes so good. There's nothing tasty about low fat bland foods, you know, <laughs> it's terrible. So it's like, I get to eat this delicious, tasty food. I feel great. I have great energy. I'm not, I'm rarely sick. Um, my life is full and wonderful. That's not restrictive. That's what is going to shift our, if we really want to shift the health of, you know, humans and the planet, I think we have to kind of go back to, to the basics. How we lived over 10,000 years ago, because grains yeah. have only, I think we, we forget that we've been around for millions of years and we've only had grains and cultivating food for 10,000 years. And in that time, our life expectancy after 10,000 years ago, our life expectancy dropped. So we actually had worse conditions and worse health since we've been eating grains and cultivating food. Yeah. You know, and it's like you, you, throughout evolution, you certainly had a greater chance. I mean, you lived less, you know, because you had illness, you could be eaten by something and the sanitation wasn't great, <clears throat> but chronic disease was non-existent. Yeah. There was no diabetes. There was, I think it's hilarious when I see articles that say meat causes cancer. I'm like, oh yeah, that's why they had cancer all throughout. You know, <laughs> we had no cancer throughout evolution and that's all we ate. You know, it's like you add processed foods and grains and you get cancer. And, you know, we now live in a world too, that's trying to tell us that, you know, fake meat in Silicon Valley is good for you. And that vegan diets are great for you. And it's just, it, we have to take a step back and realize that every species has a species specific diet. Meaning I feed, we have a tortoise, we have a dog, we feed them very differently. Mm. Humans have a species specific diet. We, we, we take in the nutrition from animal meat and fat very well. I mean, we were able to utilize it and absorb it. Yep. We are not as able to utilize and absorb plant nutrition, which that doesn't mean you can't eat some plants. If you tolerate them, I certainly do, but I would never depend on, you know, a carrot for my vitamin A just because, you know, 45% of people can't even absorb the vitamin A in carrots. It's not the most absorbable form like it is in liver. Same thing for iron, iron and spinach isn't well absorbed as iron and meat. Um, but we also, like I said, people care about the planet. If we really care about the planet, we have to get back to um, respecting and honoring regenerative agriculture, supporting farmers that are using those practices where their animals roam freely, you know, um, and where they're using both plants and animals. They're using kind of a, it's called radically traditional farming, you know, the natural life cycles where we, we move our animals and yeah let them graze like they were supposed to yeah and and not only those large animals that we eat but all the wildlife that goes with it the bees and the all the insects that continue living because it's all part of the life cycle it is yeah it all works together and it can be done i truly believe it you know people say like oh you can never do that on a large scale and I, I think we, I mean, we vote with our dollars. We vote if you're able to, I think it's the best thing to do is to support a local farmer. Um, it, but it, and it matters, you know, how you feel your body, how you show up in the world. It, it matters. Yeah. Definitely. So is there anything else you would like to talk about today? <laughs> oh my goodness. I could talk forever, but you know, I thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate uh, getting to share my story and getting to share my advocacy. Yeah, that's fabulous. And so what what does 2022, are, are you still working in the butcher shop? What does 2022 <laughs> bring for yeah, you? Yeah, you know, I'm doing um, online consults. So I, I do some like uh, pickup shifts for them now. I don't do quite as much. I 
really focusing in on my, my ultra running takes a, a lot of time. So I have a hundred um, K race coming up in June. I will be uh, going with Dr. Kinberry to speak on a low carb cruise in May. I'll be speaking at a ketogenic conference in Austin, Texas in July. I'll be back at low carb USA in San Diego in August. And then I'll be doing a 50 mile race in October. Wow. <laughs> so in between that, I'll be, uh, I do one-on-one consults, you know, and, um, I have, you know, a very non-existent social life. <laughs> <laughs> so how can people get in contact with you? Yeah. You know, I'm most active on Instagram. So please, you know, we do short, funny videos. We do some educational stuff. I'm at run, eat, meet, repeat. I, you can also go to my website, the dietitiansdilemma.net. Feel free to contact me through there. I'd be honored if you check out my book. It's on Amazon, the dietitian's dilemma. We have a paperback an ebook and an audible version. Um, well, oh, and I'm on Twitter, Michelle Hearn RD, but I do not argue with people. On Twitter, so. <laughs> yeah. I can't, I can't be doing with that. Why, why all the nastiness? Yeah. So, so there's, we're put- there's the, yeah, you know, it's funny. It's, there's some really nasty. I'm like, oh, you need, you need to chill out. Yeah. So we'll put all the links in the show notes anyway. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And, um, we'd like to ask you for your three top tips. Okay. Wow. So like I said, my number one tip always it, wherever you're at in life, especially if you're struggling is just take a minute, get by yourself and just do some like reflecting radical honesty. You know, what, what's, what's, what's going wrong, what's going right. Like, so you can just kind of get a clear picture of like how, how things are. And then, you know, my second tip, especially if you're transitioning or you're newer to a low carbohydrate diet, like really commit to 30 days because those first couple of weeks are rough or they can be, you know, headaches. You're kind of going through that keto flu and not everybody does, but you know, your whole life can look so different in 30 days. And then my next, uh, well, I guess it would be kind of a double one. I was going to say prepare, making sure you, you know, get, get meat in your fr- fridge, get things you like, um, ideally get rid, get rid of stuff that you get rid of some of the sugars and flowers. And the last thing would just be like, just be ready because people are going to, there's going to be a lot of naysayers. You know, mm-hmm. when I, when I, when I first started, I was at the hospital, you know, I'm showing up there three other dietitians, they're eating, you know, bagels and oatmeal. And I got a pound of ground beef. They're like, well, this is different, <laughs> but just be so confident. Like give yourself that 30 days. Don't worry about what other people say, focus on yourself and you'll be golden. Yeah. And perhaps in a way, don't even tell anybody else. What, yeah. What and if doing. people ask, just and be proud of it. Like, it's cool. It's okay to be different. The whole uh, 88% of people have some type of metabolic dysfunction. Be weird, be different. <laughs> yeah. It would be good to be in that top 12%, wouldn't it? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Michelle, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure. And yeah, I think it's, I'd, I'd like to have you back at some point. Oh yeah. Anytime. Just let me know. Yeah. Great. Thank you. You're welcome. It was interesting to hear some of the dogma around anorexia and binge eating about not prescribing low carb or ketogenic diets because it's restrictive and will make the disease worse. We tend to think about the low carb ketogenic diet for type 2 diabetes but imagine all those 15 to 25 year old women who could have lived and healed if they had received good information to heal their bodies heal their brains and reduce anxiety michelle also said that the system is set up against us which makes it difficult to make that paradigm shift we need to get people healthy 
And, you know, we've come across this many times before. And when the Dietitians Association is sponsored by big food companies, you know it's about profits and not health. And I, I know I'm not saying anything new to you because you're probably been on this journey and you're awake to the perils of big food. But it's really worth reiterating and hearing it again and again that the change has to come from us. It has to come from the ground up. And it it's never going to happen from the top down because there's too much money at stake um, and too many profits and too many shareholders. And as you heard Michelle say, every senator is backed by the pharma industry. They have millions, millions and millions or billions of dollars of big pharma spend every year just to lobby the politicians. So we have to make this change. And, you know, one of the ways you can do that is by sharing this podcast with some other people. If you think, you know, maybe you know someone who's anorexic or binge eating, you know, these are things that we don't always know, but maybe you do. And maybe they can have a listen to this. Maybe they're ready to change. Who knows? So I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to find the show notes, they're at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash zero eight four. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle fabulouslyketo1 and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication. <laughs>